and welcome to episode 94 of Random Encounter, the RPG Fan Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Steinman, Pale Robbie on the boards. Joining me today is Stephen Bloodstarved Myrink. That is me. Yes, indeed. you are the Bloodstarved. I'm no longer Bloodstarved, though, because I drank about 400,000 blood vials fighting the Bloodstarved Beast. <laughs> we'll catch up. We'll give like a, a five-minute update on your trials through Yarnum and Bloodborne, but we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about that today because we have new stuff to talk about, and you have to act as a salesman today to try to get me to buy Pillars of Eternity, and that's along with... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm actually fairly used to trying to sell things to people that I shouldn't have to sell them. For example, happiness. Yes. <laughs> All right, we also have uh, from the last podcast, Mike Solosi's back. Hi, I'm Mike Monsoon on the boards, and I have not played Bloodborne and because I don't have a PS4. Yeah, and you just decided to start off the uh, pre-show warm-up in a great way by comparing Bloodborne to, uh, what was it, Monster Hunter? And Steven, yep. and, I, Steven and I almost like went through the internet. I, now, I do, I do not disagree with him that there are a lot of Monster Hunter elements in Bloodborne. I just think Bloodborne and the Souls games generally have tighter controls. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, and that's, that, I mean, that's a matter of opinion. Yeah, well, I, I say things like there would be no Dark Souls or Bloodborne without Monster Hunter just to make myself feel better for wasting 400-plus hours of my life on the PSP Monster Hunter games. And I'll never get that time back. So, yeah, that's... Ugh, don't play PSP Monster Hunter, guys. Don't don't let your friends play Monster Hunter either. <laughs> friends don't let friends play PSP Monster Hunter. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we got some games to talk about this week and some news stories. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Valve kind of pulling a 180 in the span of a week, which I think is pretty good, but also shows some interesting directions about where the uh, industry is going. Talk about the burning car wreck that is Konami. Um and how sad and angry that makes me, so I apologize if I get pretty heated when we start talking about that stuff. But uh, first, just give us like a five-minute rundown, Stephen. You you kind of you had to finish up Pillars of Eternity, so you didn't have a lot of time to traverse Yarnum as a hunter. Uh, are you still enjoying Bloodborne? Yeah, no, it's fun. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely probably more streamlined than I would like. Uh, it's clear that there isn't really a whole lot of interesting experimentation with weapon paths and, and leveling up. It's very much a just dump all your points into whatever weapon stat you want to use. And, you know, from what I've seen of my roommate playing it later in the game, it sort of seems like, you know, all of the weapons sort of balance out with their stat bonuses anyway. So, uh... That I don't like, but on the other hand, it also is the tightest atmosphere and tightest game they've ever built in this vein. Uh, the boss design is phenomenal. Uh, I was stuck on the Blood Star of Beast, and we have determined it's more due to my underleveledness than anything else. <laughs> Steven's uh, like, man, I, I think I might be underleveled. I'm like level 22, and I'm like, Steven, I fight him at like 40. Like, I, I go into that fight because your level is tied into your physical defense, and that's huge in that so game. So I would... Yeah, so I would get through the first two phases without even getting hit, and then die in one hit against the third phase. Like, it would chomp me once, and I would just insta-die. So we, we decided gaining a few levels was a good idea. Yep. I think I've played through the game about uh, five or six times now. Um, I really like restarting the game. I, I think it, it doesn't have as much of a new game, plus... Uh, I actually think Dark Souls 2 does a better job of incentivizing you to play New Game Plus with new items and uh, some weapons that you can only make on New Game Plus, but Bloodborne kind of loses a little bit of that, so I love restarting characters and like going through again. I really like the progression path of the weapons and the characters. Um, well, and also, I just think the moment-to-moment -moment exploration and combat is tighter than it's ever been yep. in Bloodborne. Yep. Like, every place you go is sort of interesting and... Again, the survival horror aspect just makes the game, to me, utterly compelling. Because it's like, 
I, I was having this conversation recently, but it's the definition of survival horror in that you know you have you know that there are monsters that can one shot you down that hallway and you have to go down that hallway to progress. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't think we need to belabor the point. I think Bloodborne is still an absolutely fantastic game. I still love it. I, I find myself going back to it over and over again, but not the same way as Demon Souls or Dark Souls, where I'm doing a lot of uh, different experimentations. Like, yeah, I've tried out different weapons, but mostly what I just love is the moment to moment fighting, the bosses, like I've I've the threaded- Cane is the coolest thing ever. Like nope. you just walk around whipping. Right. So wrong. Look, the axe is not cool. The axe is. I'm a long weapon that you stab people with. Uh, no, let's let's be honest, Rob. Come uh, okay, on. the L2 on the axe is like the best attack in the entire. The L2 on the axe is a big swipe, much like every other axe attack in every other game. Uh no, it's a longer swipe. Whereas the threaded cane, we're so wrong. As as the Belmont folks would have said before Konami torched that series. <laughs> <laughs> the threaded cane is like, oh, that guy's off to the left. I know my arc will hit him over there, and I'm whipping around. And no, the threaded cane is the clear best weapon at the start. It must hurt to live in that delusional world, but I, I'll just, I'll, I will, I will allow it. I will allow it. Uh, but yeah, still a fantastic game. I, I think that if you're really looking for something that uh, you want to play on your next generation console, the PlayStation Four, it's you kind of have to do it. You know what I mean? Like you kind of have to play it. So it's, I, I would say, it is probably the strongest console exclusive that ps4 has because i mean again the last of us is also a ps3 game it's great on it's better on ps4 but um it's just it's very lengthy um it's replayable because it's fun and it's just you know it's this very deep fun experience that while it's not quite as deep as the other souls games uh it's just you know you sit down and you play it and it is nothing but fun and it's challenging in the right ways you know it doesn't cheese you uh, I got to one part, uh, and I don't want to spoil it too much, but I entered an area and was killed by a man with a sack. Oh, God. Yep. And something very different happened, and that was terrifying. Yep, uh, yep. <laughs> and I even sort of knew that it was coming, and it was still like, oh, wow, this is incredibly creepy. So they're they're doing things in this game narratively that I think the other Souls games didn't do. Um, so it's a lot of these sort of small refinements to that formula that... When you think back to, oh, Dark Souls is a great game, I'm going to go play it. But when you actually sit down and play it, it's like, wow, this is... Bloodborne made a lot of advancements in a lot of areas. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, just in the in the feel of weapons. Because, again, there are fewer weapons, but, man, they're all so different. Like, it's way more exciting to find a weapon in Bloodborne. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, we could talk about it all day, but I, I think we want to move on. I don't want our uh, listeners getting mad at us. So, if you haven't already, go out and play Bloodborne. But uh... Oh, you done talking about Bloodborne? I mean, it's not my fault you're wrong. Uh, you know, you haven't even given the game a fair shot. That That's well, fine. Just be closed-minded. You know? uh, well, I mean, the reason I haven't given the game a fair shot is because I have a mortgage to pay that can't go towards a PS4. And I probably would try it if I did have a PS4. But I'm proud of you guys. That was right around five minutes. Yeah, yeah, we did We did what we yeah. could. We, we we were trying to be nice. Now, let's talk about Diablo 3. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm kidding. I'm New hotfixes out today. Actually, I would like to hear about Oreshika. Well, I was just about to say, if you were talking about Diablo 3, I'd have to pour some shots. But I can talk about Oreshika if you want. Yes, please. I have no uh, idea what this is. It, it is super weird. I mean, I, I first heard about this game in, uh, I think, around a year ago when they were announcing that it might, uh, probably on RPG Fan, that they were announcing it might come over to the United States. But it's... Of it's or in Japan it's Oreshika 2, because the first Oreshika game is a 1999 PlayStation One game. 
that uh, was sort of a cult hit, Japan only. I had never heard of it. And they it has a, this Vita follow-up in uh, 2014 in Japan that was brought to the United States, digital only, Vita only, in uh, the first or second week of March of this year. And which is also coincidentally right around the time I bought a Vita and was looking for something to play on it. And after finishing Persona 4 Golden and East Memories of Gel- of Celsetta, I looked at this Oreshika thing. And man, it is weird, but really interesting. And the the premise alone just really blew my mind a little bit. Because it's uh, set in feudal Japan... Uh, around a thousand years ago, you're uh, you're the head of a clan that gets betrayed by somebody in the court and compl- and murdered and cursed. And what you're trying to do is break the curse on your clan with created characters and the assistance of some gods. And there's <sighs> there's a lot going on here because you're uh, the curse that's on your clan means that no one in your clan can live for more than two years. So what you have, what you have, is a bunch of characters that are r- mostly randomly generated, that you uh, have to raise to into fighting shape in you know sort of game months that pass along in a calendar, sort of like Persona Three or Persona Four, and uh, so characters are born, then they're ready to fight around four months, and then around. 14 or 16 months, they start getting old and dying, and they're all dead, and they're guaranteed dead before they hit two years old. That sounds strange. I know. But, and... <laughs> well, there are much stranger concepts in the world. For example, you know, Valk- uh, Valkyrie Profile is about raising dead people to a certain level before you send them to Valhalla. This so. has, has, it's sort of like that, but yeah, you're basically, you're this clan of people that are making pacts with gods to create new babies and, um, and have the, and fight in dungeons to rate, uh, to generate, to both raise gold, to build up your little town and improve your, uh, equipment and also raise, generate praise, which allows you to get, uh, you know, to make pacts with bigger and more expensive and more powerful gods that will result in powerful children and, like I, I remember, the first god I made a pact with was a, a dark-skinned, blonde hair earth goddess of some kind. There, there's about like 200 gods in the game, and they're all from some corner of Japanese folklore. They, and so uh, all of my children from that goddess ended up being dark-skinned and blonde-haired. So I have all these like Ganguro characters in the uh, in that side of the family tree now. But um, the the game has that sort of weird, interesting premise. Of, you know, you're trying to break this curse in your family, but I'm not sure the rest of the gameplay really lives up to the premise because you're, you know, you're crashing a dungeon that has, uh, you know, enemies walking around visible in the dungeon. You you uh, encounter them. Turn-based battles. The turn-based battles are pretty straightforward, and I think the problem that I had with it is that is the lack of variety for most of it because there's eight classes in the game and you only start with three. And uh, of three of your choice, and you collect the other five, but from random drops. And I was a little unlucky with random drops. So my first five or six hours of the game, I was going through a couple generations of characters, and I can only have them as these three frontline classes that I unwisely chose at the beginning. So I'm a little curious uh, on sort of that note. 
is there sort of like a meta level of strategy in like how you're picking your god and like your classes versus like the children like you know sort of like how in like darkest dungeon it's not necessarily just about the choices you make on one character but uh, as a whole that you're making strategically when you put together a party or something like that yeah there's some uh there's there's a, a variety of elemental stats that each character has, sort of a balance of four elements, and and uh, by making packs with gods that have different concentrations and levels of elements will affect the children's affinities and stats and things of that nature. But there's very there's not a whole lot in the way of special skills. I mean, almost everything comes from random enemy drops, or uh, like finding special rare enemies that you can only kill with certain conditions, like having a certain class in the party or having a certain skill equipped when you're fighting the, the demon. It's a lot of things. Like, the game doesn't really communicate things to you that much with the special objectives that it has. And most of the variety is whether you put a character in the front row or back row, which affects what kind of attacks the class can make. And I, again, unwisely, I picked three classes at the beginning that are all sort of frontline classes. The game's roughly half frontline and half backline classes. And uh, and I was just hacking and pressing A for attack for the first several hours of the game. And uh, sort of early on, um, uh, the one special character in the game joins you. She's a goddess named Nueko that is, you know, basically sympathizes with your clan's plight. And you can have Nueko. Uh, reincarnate into your into your party through through a similar god pact system but a little bit different from other children and Basically she because reasons yeah because reasons and she has some attacks that seem a little too powerful uh when you're just running through random dungeons and she needs to be present if you defeat a guardian that is one of the requirements for making real progress in the game so sometimes there's not enough variety. Sometimes it's really unclear what you're supposed to do to complete a certain objective. And sometimes it really feels random and arbitrary. But in general, it's, I mean, it depends on what your grind tolerance for this kind of game is, I guess. But I'm mostly having a good time with it because it's, it, I, I like seeing the numbers get higher as I build up my base and, and make new kids. I like, uh, the dungeons are, if not super interesting or elaborate they're at least you know they're 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 not so bad i mean they're all sort of japanese themed it actually sounds like a roguelike to me honestly like it sounds like there are a lot of components of it that remind me actually of darkest dungeon uh you know maybe not quite as punishing but well like it can't it can't get you know and that's and that's it makes it sound like very much like a roguelike to me and that's what makes it sound interesting to me aside from the the japanese the heavy Japanese influences. Um, yeah, it's yeah. I actually had a bit of a Okami vibe from it, just because it doesn't look as good as Okami, which is a gorgeous game in many many ways. But it has like brushstroke sort of inky art for the attacks. Uh, everything's very heavily influenced by Japanese myth and folklore, and uh, yeah, I, th I think I think um, Amaterasu was one of the guys that you can make a pact with, but I'm not positive about that. It's. I, I wish it was a little bit better. I wish that all the classes were unlockable from the beginning. I wish that there was more of a sort of like skill customization that just wasn't that just didn't have everything generated by random drops. But it is not bad. I am enjoying most of the what I'm playing, and it is its premise is so interesting and unique that it wants me. I want to see to th see it through to the end, but I'm not sure it lives up to that interesting premise. 
Well, if it's not a total waste of time, that's good, too. Oh, it's not like, a total waste. I'm probably being too negative on it. I'm enjoying it. I have about 15 or 16 hours in it. Uh, oh, and oh, I should mention, at the very beginning, you're allowed to choose your pace, whether, it, like, right when you start the game and design your clan's uh, outfit and symbol and everything, it says, what pace do you want to play at? Casual, 10 hours to beat it. Standard, 30 hours to beat it. I picked the standard one. But it, I think the range was, like, 10, 30, 50, or 90, or some number similar to that. So, so they're sort yeah. of letting you play with the randomization element to, to change the pace of the game. Yeah, basically, they... The, they're letting you pick exactly how much you want to put into it. And the standard 30 seemed about right for me. I wasn't, I mean, I went into this game knowing almost nothing about it. So, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's really, it's unique. It's interesting, but a little too grindy. And I sort of wish that there was more variety, but, um, yeah. And also, uh, Sony released it in the first or second week of March and I didn't hear hardly a drop about it. It's... Yeah, well, what's weird about it is that you mentioned it, and I was like, mm, that sounds familiar, and it's because we did news stories on it, but I was like, I don't think they've talked about it at all. And then they put it on the PlayStation blog, and it's like, maybe talk about these games you're releasing a little more? Well, and if anything, Sony has a serious problem right now, or at least a perceived serious problem, where there aren't a lot of big exclusives to talk about now the Bloodborne's out. You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're not there. We have a lot of cross-play... Uh, cross-play. We have a lot of titles releasing on Xbox One and PlayStation 4. Good lord, that new, Ma- that new Mad Max looks amazing. Uh, but, like, there's nothing really big for them to talk about. So here you have a game that they could kind of champion a little bit here, and they're kind of not doing anything. It seems well, like they're a little off-message. Well, especially given that it's for the Vita, you know, like, yeah. the fact that I write for an RPG site and only barely had a conception of this game speaks to the fact that it's not being advertised enough. Because, you know, you don't seem super down on it. You know, you, it, it sounds like it has flaws, but it's still worth playing. And I feel like that's the sort of thing that Sony should be pushing on Vita because it's not like, you know, there's this one killer app. Oh, I went and bought a console. But it's like, you know, every time you have a pretty good game, that adds value to it. And they're trying, you know, well, they're sort of not trying to sell Vitas anymore, but they should be. Yeah, I I remember reading about it when it came out in Japan last year, and then when I was looking for things to put on my Vita, I had I wasn't even aware that this thing had come out. It was like, hey, does I even I think I went on Twitter or the or some other forums saying, hey, does anyone know about this game? Am I like the only person in America playing this? And it's it, I'm it is really under everyone's radar, and it got okay reviews in the American press. It, uh, I mean, it actually came out. There's very, there's very uh, little in the way of localization. There's uh, uh, a lot of Japanese vo- voice work and no English language voice work at all. And well, whatever it's translated, of course. To be fair, uh, I think certain games do better with Japanese voice work, uh, sure. and not not in a oh, it's better do the uh, in, but in like Muramasa. Muramasa is a better game with Japanese voice acting because to to shoehorn English into that would have sort of cut out some of the tone of the game. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know about altering the tone of the game, but this I totally get that this would make less sense with English language voice work. And the Japanese voice work, most of it's from the little sort of tutorial demon that follows, like weasel girl thing that follows you around and explains things to you. That's most of the voice work, but, I mean, it's there. And How's the music? Yeah. It is very Japanese-influenced. You know, shamisen, taiko, drums, Japanese flute. Thing, uh, it's all right. It gets a little bit repetitive since you like the first several dungeons have 
a very, very similar Tycho beat to them that gets a little repetitive. And once I... if uh, I, I I liked the music the first time I heard it, but uh, running the same dungeons over and over, I switched to you know listening to a podcast and making it a podcast game, like I did with Torchlight for Our Civilization. Perhaps your Friendly Neighborhood Music Podcast? Perhaps. It, it could have an inclusion, especially the very, very cool end credit song and opening intro song. Both of those might make a friendly neighborhood music podcast in the future i'm charging you for two plugs of your podcast on this show steven just uh just throwing that out there because you'll do it again you know you know we've plugged it enough because people are coming to us to ask about the show i know isn't that awesome that is is pretty amazing okay so it sounds like this is an interesting title you know like it it ain't gonna set the world on fire but it's something which is kind of neat it is something unique and weird on the vita and if that if you go in there expecting that and don't mind a little bit of grind in your RPG, then it is worth looking into. Mm-hmm. Considering all of us have professed to profess love for Persona 4, we all clearly don't mind a little yes. grind. No, no, no. I, I think a little bit of grind is fine in my JRPG. I was I was thinking about this the other day because I was I was grinding a little bit in Bloodborne because I wanted to like get some like special rocks to upgrade my axe because you know why wouldn't you upgrade the axe unless you're Steven and wrong? But uh, like. I don't... Sorry, I just like to do things other than attack with the same weapon I've attacked with in 300 other games. Yeah, sure. Okay, whatever. Well, I don't, because axes are lame, but that's neither here nor there. Fine, whatever. Uh, but I, I think that the grind doesn't bother me, and grinding in Persona 3 and Persona 4 never bothered me, because the combat was so quick, snappy, and fun. And I think Xenoblade was also pretty good about that. Like, those are games that the core combat is really fun, whereas, you know, I'm looking right now at my desk up at Radiant Historia up there. Not to bag on that game, but I really didn't enjoy that game's combat. So Actually, I was going to – sorry to cut you off. I Actually, I agree. While he was talking about it, I actually sort of thought, this, thought the same thing where that whole game is great. The combat system is sort of bland. Yeah, exactly. And that can – you know, JRPGs kind of live or die by their combat systems, in my opinion. You know, I very famously didn't like Final Fantasy XIII, but the people that liked it talk about how much they love the combat system. Me, I didn't really enjoy it that much. Like, that's kind of the make or break for these games. And so if you have a combat system that's not really going to hold my attention, how can you expect me to play it for 50 hours? Yeah, something like 60 or 70% of the combat in Orishika is, can I attack the front row or the back row, and how much damage can I do? Yeah, that's actually very rating Historia. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the the enemy variety is also very important, especially in action RPGs. You know, like you know, it, it's really fun to fight different enemies in Diablo and see them blow up in different ways. And I think the expansion did a really good job of adding new enemy types that do new things. You know, th- those kind that's... of those things are really important in video games. If you like pilot swaps of a variety of Japanese oni, then have I have a game for you? Do I have a game for you? <laughs> And see, yeah. palette swaps. Palette swaps are interesting because I don't mind a palette swap. Uh, p- power swap. I don't uh, mind a palette swap. I'm gonna work on my my uh, my accent, sir. Your I diction? don't. I don't mind a palette swap, provided that maybe the enemy gets some new attacks or something new. I actually think Rogue Legacy was really good about that. I don't even want to describe to the listeners that my wife ha- completely maxed out the upgrade tree in Rogue Legacy. Okay, somebody's playing something. <laughs> I hear Link in the background. Sorry, I actually did that on purpose. I am listening to the Your Wife Rogue Legacy. Yeah, she completely maxed out the upgrade path. But as she's playing this game on like her new game plus 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 or whatever it is right now, she's still fighting new enemies that 
even though they're palette swaps, they have different attack patterns, or they're doing new things. So that's actually a smart game that doesn't have a whole lot of enemy variety in terms of the sprites, but manages to do unique things with them. I think that's pretty cool. I will not make any claim like that for Orishika at all, except oh, for bosses. Oh, boy. Well, uh, it sounds interesting. Sounds like an R- a JRPG for people to go after as we sit here patiently, or not so patiently awaiting Persona 5, Final Fantasy 15... Is it Xenoblade X? Xenoblade, which yep. came out was out in Japan as of this recording. Yes, it is out. Oh my god! I watch streams. I need that game. I, I any skepticism I had is gone. Does it? Uh, uh, it's I didn't. Very watch... different. It's different from Xenoblade, but it looks like sci-fi Xenoblade. But they went all the way with the tone. Yeah, I, I didn't watch a whole lot of the streams. I watched a little bit of the exploration. The exploration looks great. Um, do do you feel like our concerns about the main character, like does he does he or she talk in cutscenes? So stuff? It, it seems like he's silent, which is a bummer. But he yeah. is in he or she is involved in the story. You uh, can do it properly. I actually like. I actually spoiled a little bit of the beginning, only because I was really curious as to whether or not the character would be a character. So I wouldn't expect Shulk. It's not like he's going to be running around like Fiora. I'm really feeling uh, it. You know, but uh, he's in all of the cutscenes. I'm saying he because the streams I watch are mostly dudes. Um, and, you know, like there seem to be narrative elements that revolve around your character. Uh, and it still has those like really dramatic Xenoblade cutscenes. Like, you know, there was one where like your character's running to save somebody and cool stuff happens, you know. So uh, not to not to hijack or anything, but no, it looks it looks cool. I'm, I'm excited. It looks it looks different from Xenoblade. And certainly it has a little more open worldiness to it. But it also seems to have it, it seems to be the sci-fi RPG that we've wanted from Star Ocean since Star Ocean was first made. Yeah, and I, I got a very huh. strong Xenosaga vibe in the art style. Like I think it's, when I when I kind of backed up and looked at it again, I'm like, oh, okay. All it's, right. it, I would say tone wise, from what I've seen, it's sort of its own thing. But because of the music being uh, Sawano and like just the the scale of it and having the the dolls or the what do they call them scales in English uh, something I think dolls was perfectly fine but whatever yeah exo scales uh, it has much more of a Xeno Gears and Xeno Saga like very dramatic weighty tone to it not that Xenoblade wasn't weighty but Xenoblade was a little more like friendly in terms of its atmosphere whereas the the Gears and Sagas of the world are much darker and sort of more severe. How long do you think it's going to take you before you fight a boss that is named God or something similar? <laughs> there are Zohars in the trailer. I don't think it'll be oh, that serious? <laughs> Okay, that makes me kind of happy. When do we think, <laughs> when do we think we get that in America? I, I would say maybe... I think there's a very slim possibility for late this year. Actually, uh, you would be mistaken then because they've already confirmed it's 2015. Okay. Uh, on a recent Nintendo Direct. Because uh, Nintendo never delays. People are arguing Zelda, but Zelda is a game that is not even halfway done. Xenoblade is a game that is completely done that's been being localized since the beginning of the year. I, I really, I, I find it interesting, not to go away from Xenoblade too fast, but I, I find it interesting on all the podcasts that I've listened to, people are really poo-pooing the internet response to, oh, the next Zelda will be on the next generation console. And people are like, no, there's absolutely no way that's happening. I don't think they're hearing the argument. My argument would be, I think it's going to be possibly on both. If you that mean, straddle it, I don't just like the, uh, just like sure, Twilight Princess did. Sure. Why the hell not? I don't think that new hardware is going to be a console. That's also. I think it's going to be a set-top box that plays Wii U games. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that because I don't think the Wii U has. 
fulfilled the promise of it. The Wii U has never made or has yet to make a good argument for that screen. So why not just say, you know what? We're going to keep this architecture. We're going to keep making games work because the games look fantastic. I mean, Mario in HD. Nintendo does amazing. more with Nintendo does more with PS3 level hardware than most people have ever done. I would have, I, you know what? I would actually have zero problem if they released a Wii U console, took the damn second screen out, which would make some games obsolete. I understand that. No, uh, uh, Zombie or whatever like that. No Xenoblade. No, it, it, would Xenoblade require it? Xenoblade does quite a bit on the touchscreen, from okay. what I understand. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind picking up a console that was fifty bucks less and not have to worry about that screen. I hope that this new thing that Nintendo is working on has connectivity between the Wii U and the 3DS, because Nintendo is really making their money with the 3DS right now. My God, that's and so good, yeah. If there was, if there was some kind, some additional levels of intercommunication between the two devices, or between the 3DS and this new thing, or this new thing and the Wii U, I don't, I, it's, it's all speculation at this point. But if they could, you know, have more interconnectivity between their devices, sort of like how Sony was trying to do with Evita before they abandoned that burning, sinking ship. Well, they, th- to be fair, they also do very well with cross-play and cross-buy. I mean, I got Broken Age, I have it on everything. I got Shovel Knight, I have it on everything. So they may not be advertising it, but the fact is, when you buy something on the PlayStation Network, you're getting quite a bit of value for whatever you just bought. Yeah, like, they, you know, they're doing that, a That's not job. for every game, but for several things, yes. But yeah, for I mean, a lot of games. You can't do that for Final Fantasy X, which was a bummer for me, who that, bought it that, for that's the a PS3. Bummer. That's a bummer, but Nintendo doesn't even make sense with what they're doing. And actually, I I feel like this new console and their partnership with DNA is actually going to change that. Oh, you think it might have some kind of mobile integration in this new console? What's the code name for it again? It has a name. The the NX. But no, what the thing is, is that Nintendo is letting DNA handle their online infrastructure and their like sort of like distribution and stuff. So I'm expecting that moving forward, you're going to see better interconnectivity between the Nintendo shops. Because uh, they're better than they were, but they still sort of suck. Yeah. I thought it was inexcusable that they had the Wii Shop, Wii U Shop, and 3DS Shop unable to communicate with each other. You can't I, even I would agree you, with you. You can't yeah. even up, you can't even get money in one shop and have it appear in other shops. It's I, that's an embarrassment. I, I, I am only now impressed that when I start Smash Brothers, it's like, hey, there's a patch, and I'm like, oh my god, a Nintendo console recognized there was a patch, and I didn't have to go and search for it by the glossary. I honest to God hate turning on my 3DS because I'll leave it off for like a month and then come back to it. And when I turn it on, it needs to update. I need to remember my password. I need to hit this. I need to hit that. It is, I end up screaming. I end up, no, for whatever reason, it won't hold the password sometimes. So I need to remember what my login was for the Nintendo eShop or whatever. And I'm just like, I, I want to, to throw at least it across be the fair. If it's not their fault, you can't remember your password. But it's also not fair that it is so cumbersome and slow. It is very, yes, it is that. It's so nasty. Like, and they really, I'm sorry, there are too many patches. There, there, there are too many patches. And until you have what, like, Sony's doing, and I, I, I think Xbox One does it as well, where it will download the patch if the system is in rest mode and have it all uploaded and ready. When the Bloodborne patch came out, that thing was ready to go when I turned on my console. I got home that day. Hey, Rob, time to play some Bloodborne, dude. We got this thing ready for you. Let's do this. I mean, Sony and Microsoft had seven or eight years of mucking around on the PS3 and 360 before they could really figure out how the patching and loading and pre-downloading technology could, you know, be a lot smoother. And this is a brave, scary new world for Nintendo. Yes, and and honestly... can't get voice chat right. Yeah, 
Nintendo's lucky that they make so many good games every year because their online infrastructure is a mess. Yeah. But anywho, get, getting back to what I, what kind of brought us here. I, I'm Bravely not, second. I, I'm not saying that Zelda is going to skip the Wii U and go directly to this next console, but I don't think that it is completely crazy to imagine that this game that is not going to be seen at E3, apparently, and will probably not be coming out until next holiday season at the earliest, at the earliest, I don't think it's crazy to imagine that you might have a new console out and it's on both. I don't think that's I don't think that's nuts at all. Are they going to completely not release it for the Wii U? No, that's crazy. Because then you are officially saying we're not supporting this console anymore. That, have, it is absolutely coming out on the Wii U. Yes, Maybe it definitely. will come out on another console, but I, you know, they sort of have recently attempted to embrace the particular quirks of the hardware. But there's nothing saying that the next one won't have a screen in the controller. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I'm pretty because again, I feel like it's just going to be a Wii U set top box. Yeah. I'm pretty close to buying a Wii U. Uh, the the Fatal Frame announcement has me very interested. That's a series that I want to get into more. I own the first two games as PlayStation Classics. I want to play that, um, and I want to play Xenoblade, and I'll want to play Zelda. You know, I I'm about ready to jump. So yeah, I mean, they have the games that are out there, and Nintendo produces amazing titles. Like everybody knows that. Like I may not be interested in the newest Mario Kart, but I would be a, a damn fool to say that it's not a great game that's going to sell units. Of course it is. I'm just not that interested in it. That's totally fair. And I mean, I'm with you. I think that if this NX new device is a Wii U Plus or whatever you want to call it, then the new Zelda could straddle those two generations just like how Twilight Princess did. And the best—that's that's totally reasonable. And the best version of Twilight Princess was on GameCube, and everybody yep. knows it. I only played the Wii one; and I had no problem with it. But apparently, everyone says I'm a heathen for that because Link is all like, "I'm right-handed." I, I I don't care about that. I just I just think that that game controlled fine with a controller. Like it. Uh, oh, it controlled fine with the Wii remote, though. All you did was shake the remote occasionally to attack or something, or you could just press the A button. Um, I'm not bringing up Skyward Sword again. I'm not getting into that. I actually owned a guy. Skyward for- Sword and Twilight Princess are very different in terms of controls. Yeah, one's a good Zelda game and one's not. <laughs> I actually had a guide for Twilight Princess because, you know, I think they were phasing them out, so it cost one penny. And it was for the Wii version, but I had the GameCube version, so all of the maps were... Uh, yeah, they flipped them. Yeah. And that was a little bit... Trying to use the guide as within the dungeons was an interesting experience that was like a second puzzle on top of the actual puzzle in the dungeon. <laughs> When you say interesting experience, do you mean horrifying nightmare or interesting experience? Like first, there's anger, then acceptance, then sort of you, you sort of like it a little bit. Not sure what a good metaphor but, for that is. Uh, you know what game series you might want to try out, Mike? It's called the Souls series: Demon Souls, Dark Souls, Dark Souls. <laughs> kind of the same progression. Actually, I would probably skip Dark Souls too, but yeah. I, I, I the Souls series. I would probably go back and play Demon Souls now. I kind of want to. I actually own Demon so- Souls and Dark Souls, but just never really made it more than ninety minutes into either of them. That's that's depressing. Okay, uh, so we got a little sidetrack there. So Stephen, yes, tell me about Pillars of Eternity. I've been waiting for this. Ooh, and Pillars I, of Eternity. I've been is... sitting here debating whether or not I want to take this plunge because Divinity, uh, a little bit of history, and you put it into your review, which I really liked. And yes, I did read your review, Stephen. I love you, and I read your review. Um, you bring up Divinity and Wasteland 2, and I think those two titles 
have me very snake bit right now on the classic CRPG because you have, let me just finish real quick. Divinity, um, I, I am but a simple caveman, and I cannot understand Divinity. It, it, it intimidates and confuses me. God rest your soul, Phil Hartman. Yes, I'm using your Saturday Night Live sketch. And Wasteland 2 was a little... Boring. Cumbersome and boring. I, I wanted to like that game more than I wanted to, but I think that it kind of missed some of the modern things that have happened in gaming that make a more pleasant experience. So, with that in mind, begin. <laughs> so... Uh, again, we've talked about this a hundred million times, but you know, I was saying probably a week before I even got Pillars, you know, I, you know, Divinity is fantastic. It's it's an awesome, you know, I, I I was calling it a classic styled computer RPG. I would probably amend that now and say it's a little more modern, um, and that's that's what I like about it, and that's what made me sort of, again, gun shy about Pillars, and you know, like like you, I played Wasteland, and I just was never really that interested in it like I just wasn't having fun I you know it felt sort of it had the sort of glitchy held together by scotch tape vibe of classic CRPGs so it got that right but you know it just wasn't fun it just felt old and like I had seen it all before and you know it just I I appreciated the mindset that went into making it and certainly the passion and care that they spent developing that game but it just it felt like something I had played before just not quite as good Mm-hmm. Whereas Divinity felt like something I had played before but with all these great new ideas. They're a really cool physics system. But the the main thing I would say to compare Divinity to Pillars is that Pillars is more traditional, yes, but also less of an – and Divinity is not an open world game, but less open than Divinity. Because Divinity is very much a, yeah, you have a sort of goal, go. And, you know, you, like you said, you know, there's five ways you can leave the first town – Three of them will get you slaughtered. One of them is sort of a good way, and the other one is very challenging. So it's very, you know, it, it, it sort of starts challenging you right from the start. And there are a lot of systems in Divinity that really aren't, either aren't explained or they sort of rely on you figuring it out uh, and experimenting. Like the biggest culprit is the crafting system. I love the game, and I sort of didn't figure out crafting until almost the end of the game in my first playthrough. That was like a 90-hour playthrough. Uh, it's a great crafting system, but again, it's... It, it, along with the combat system and the way you level up and a lot of the things that open up over the course of the game are more of a, you know, explore and do cool stuff. And again, it has hard turn-based combat. Divinity, or Pillars, does not have hard turn-based combat for starters. It has real-time combat that you can pause, which is a throwback to the Infinity Engine games. And what's cool about that style of combat is that it's at your pace. It's sort of like the active battle system in Final Fantasy, you know, or the active, when you put ATB on active mode, where, you know, it's always going. Only, it's like when you're, let me rephrase that, it's like the active system, but on wait, where when it's time to make a command, you have all the time you need to think. And you can set auto-pause conditions in combat, so it's like, you know, if I encounter a strong enemy, or if somebody gets poisoned, the game will automatically pause, so you can assess the situation. I don't use that, because it's sort of, I, I, I personally do not have trouble managing that moment-to-moment but what's cool about that is that it sort of lets you pace the combat as you like. If you're wanting to make every little command, you know, if you're doing something very particular, if you're trying to, you know, take out the enemies in a certain order or get your party to walk in a certain formation or, you know, you want to have your paladin stand just a little bit off to the left while your mage throws a lance of fire at somebody and then step over, you have that kind of control. But you also have the option to either slow it down to a slow motion thing, which is not in classic Infinity Engine games, which 
is weird to me because at that point, just pause. Uh, or you can, you know, you can play it in real time, which is weird. But on the other hand, for easier encounters, that allows you to just sort of, you know, if you know you can get through the fight just by whacking everybody, then, you know, you can do that. Um, so that's, that's, those are sort of the differences between Divinity and Pillars. But again, one of the, the I would say the main difference is that Divinity has a lot of really cool cooperative role-playing elements, but they are not, I would say, as realized as they are in Pillars of Eternity. Because in Pillars, for starters, your dialogue is of the Planescape Torment variety. I would say it's even more expansive than classic Baldur's Gate games because there's, you know, any number of situations could have, you know, you could have up to six, seven, eight, nine, ten. <laughs> At one point I had 12 conversation options. And, you know, sometimes they'll be locked off to you and you can actually modify whether or not it shows you options you can't do. But it'll, you know, sometimes it'll be based on your class. Like, oh, if you're a mage, yeah, of course I know about this wizardry stuff. So you get a different conversation option that could have a totally different conclusion to this quest. Or, you know, if you have a lot of strength, you could threaten somebody. That's a classic one. Or if you have a lot of perception and someone is clearly lying to you and you have high perception, you could be like, hey, you said someone stole someone stole your 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 goat and they broke in the window but the window isn't broken uh-huh. perception lets you do that or you know your background could affect it or what's most interesting is that your reputation and this is not a mass effect you're well, either, your, your reputation and your there's like 12 dispositions or something yeah so what happens is you don't have these dispositions you don't know what they are but for example if every conversation you're a total d-bag to everybody but you're still doing nice things you'll get points in aggressive and in benevolence. So if you're like, oh, God, you're such a jackass, but I'm going to help you. You'll get known for being benevolent, but also sort of a jerk. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and people react to that. So, like, you know, occasionally, like, and this happened a lot. It, this wasn't a, oh, in Fallout, Fallout 3, there are so many ways to end quests. We have this one where you can blow up a town or not blow it up. And that was sort of the only one. I mean, there were others, but none of them were that major. This is, like, pervasive. Like, you will walk to a new city and your reputation will precede you. Someone will be like... Someone will run up to you and be like, look, I heard you're really nice and you do these things. Can you please help me? Uh-huh. Or, you know, if you're known, I'm starting a new file where my character is kind of a dick. And people will walk up and be like, uh, hey, how's it going? Uh, I hope I'm not making you mad. And, you know, so it those little things that lend to immersion. Um, but what's coolest about that is that there are a lot of sequences in the game. One in particular I have in mind where if you... Cultivate a reputation for being honest, for example, because your dispositions will rank up as you do those things. So if you're perpetually honest, you will get higher and higher ranks in the honesty disposition. And at one point, there's actually, you know, there's there's an event going on where you need to prove something. And because I had cultivated such a reputation for being a straight shooter in this town, I was able to say, look, you can ask anybody here. I'm totally, you know, I'm always honest. I'm saying this is happening and my word should be proof alone. And you can actually fulfill that. Um, so it's in that large amount of writing that I think Divinity sets it apart from these games in that I'm playing Divinity. I'm enjoying the combat. The, the, the class system is great, you know, and we could talk about that. I That's love all the class good. system in this game. It, it's, it's very, you know, you, you are clearly a mage, but you have a lot of flexibility in your mage. And I actually didn't make a mage. You'd be proud of me. Um, what? I know, right? Uh, oh, great. But what, Hell froze what, over. Fantastic. The, the, the thing about Divinity, the pillars that made me literally start a new playthrough the day after I beat it and I don't do that, I just don't do that, was that every single interaction you have is so interesting and so colored by how you're role-playing that I, I would say it's the truest representation of tabletop role-playing I've ever played in a game. It's just like, 
all of those little things coalesce to create this experience that is very much a, I am playing a character in a role in a really well-realized world. I'm not just, you know, an avatar collecting weapons and beating up enemies and then going through three dialogue options. This is not Bioware like, hey, let me help you. Okay, bye. I want to be a dragon. Well, Uh, I think think the role-playing portion of most of the Western RPGs has have fallen into the we're giving you dialogue choices, but the dialogue choices are always like to to quote Yahtzee in one of his reviews, like tell me more about the people of Megaton. Tell me more about the raiders that are in the area. Like that's the role playing. You're not really making decisions. The game there's has... there's a little bit of that, but um, sure, sure. It, that's there's there is expository dialogue like that, but when you sort of get to a break point in the dialogue, that might affect how a character or a town thinks of you, they will look at all of your reputations and disposition rankings and, and what kind of class you are and everything and your stats, and and then you can get 10 to 15-plus dialogue options at the end of the, at the, end of the rabbit hole. Yeah, and, yeah, and it, you know, it's there's... It's staggering. I, 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 there's a lot of reading in this game. Yeah, that's the thing. If you don't like reading, don't play, just don't play this game. Flat out, this is not a... I like to play the action mode in, in Mass Effect, so I pick the action mode where all the dialogue is chosen for me. Don't do that. I would say I had 93 hours in my first playthrough. I would say a solid 45 of it was spent reading. Um, and it's not like Metal Gear where you're reading forever and ever and ever. It's just the game is delivered to you through text, and it's really well written. You know, your character can read souls. So, you know, there are people you can meet where you can, like, reach out to their soul and get a cool little short story from their past, very Lost Odyssey style. Uh, and it plays into the main dial narrative a lot too, you know, like someone will be like, I'm totally not secretly keeping someone in my basement. And then you'll like reach out to them and see when they kidnap the person. And you can like, you can play it cool or you can be like, huh, that's funny. Cause I remember when you were at the tavern and kidnapped this person and they're like, ah, uh, how'd you know that? So there's, it, it's, it's oddly power fantasy in that your character, like if you play cleverly, you have all these interesting s- scenarios open to you. And so, like, you know, my new char- – and there's nuance to it. You know, like, my original character was my usual, I'm incredibly nice, I don't take rewards, I always help everybody, and I, I do the right thing, and I don't get angry. I'm playing another character now. Uh, I made two custom characters. It's a monk and a rogue. And they're, I'm playing them sort of as a duo that they will begrudgingly help people but are, like, constantly trying to stay not involved with local, you know, crap. And it's amazing how different the game is. Like, the way people approach me is so different, if they approach me at all. Uh, certain groups are, like, that... Uh, there was one group in the in my original playthrough that, because I crossed them, they're basically a crime syndicate, they started trying to assassinate me in town every time I'm walking around. But they would always, like, the people would show up and say something that would be like, ah, I'm actually not working for this group. Ah, you stole money from me. And then you kill them and you find the note that clearly says that they were. Whereas now, that group, because I have not cultivated a reputation as a do-gooder, even though I am doing good things, I'm not known for it. They're like, hey, you know, do you want to help us out? Mm-hmm. So it's 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 very subtle the way it changes, but it's just the, the, the writing is so good that I, it makes me just want to keep playing it and keep exploring. Because their world and their lore is great. And this is not like, again, I love Dragon Age Inquisition, although in retrospect, this game makes me like it a little less. Uh... Because this is not, hey, we dumped 400,000 lore books on the ground. There's our lore. Because there is some of that in this game. There's a lot of that because there's a lot of writing everywhere. But this is a game where their lore is informing the story. This isn't, we have 3,000 years of history to the Angelus Council. Also, Malthael is a dick. Go kill him. <laughs> uh, you know, this is very much a, we, we created a world and then we wrote a story that hinges upon that, that fiction. 
the the one crazy thing about this game to me, I mean. I barely played computer RPGs, but I gave to this Kickstarter anyway because everyone else was, which is a terrible reason to spend money on anything, but whatever. I don't make good We're decisions well all the time. time. Yeah, it, wor it worked out this time. I, I, so I'd never played more than an hour of an Infinity Engine game because I was always overwhelmed by the stuff you can do, and I always seemed to die right away. I just didn't really get it. And playing this game at probably a lower difficulty than Steven's playing it, uh, was really eye-opening and fascinating, and it's and it's a totally new kind of game experience to me. And the way I role-played was really informed by, by my choice of class, because I decided to make my main character a paladin. And the paladin's natural ability is this barrier that, uh, that you know, increases a bunch of his resistances. And when you create your paladin, you choose the uh, organization he or she belongs to, or so, sort of, and along with that organization, there's sort of a creed. And, like, so if you're a do-gooding paladin, then, uh, based on your creed, that your shield improves if you pick more benevolent and kind options, and the shield weakens if you pick more cruel or aggressive options. And so there's five or six of those, like, orders of paladins that you can choose that will inform... Uh, the dispositions that you should choose for bonuses, and avoid ones that may not give you bonuses. So the ones that I picked are the ones that give you is the uh, order that gives you a disposition bonus if you're stoic or honest. So my paladin is basically uh, uh, what's his name, Stannis Baratheon. What you're saying he, is that you're a straight shooter with upper management written all over him. Yeah, he is super. He is super boring, but has does everything by the book and is more inclined to just not say anything than say something nice or mean. And you can do that. There are a lot of dialogue sequences where your option is say nothing, and that will affect things. See what's what's actually got me the most intrigued about this game, and I, I think it's where like my break with Divinity happened very fast because I I didn't enjoy the combat. Like I, again, I get it's deep, but it just it didn't do it for me. You guys have spent all this time talking about the role-playing of the game, which, if we go back to one of my favorite games ever, and everybody take a shot because I'm going to mention Vampire, I love Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines because I get to role-play my vampire. That game is not actually very fun to play from a gameplay <laughs> perspective. Like no. It's, it's kind of crappy. but like the Which, is, which is totally par for the course for a lot of those classic games. Right, but like the role-playing aspect of that game is fantastic. Like You find like some information on somebody and you kind of hold it over their head and the game rewards you for doing that sort of thing. I'm not saying that Pillars doesn't have great combat. Like I'm sure you guys are going to touch on that here in a second, but this is, you guys are spending more time talking about the role-playing in the game, which I think is one of the the main things that I love about Western RPGs, as opposed, like, I love a good story in my JRPG, don't get me wrong, like, I love, you know, Ryan Time, and I'm gonna get the, the shirt that has the clock with Ryan's face all over it's it. It's Ryan Time! I love that stuff, but I love role-playing, that was my favorite part of tabletop gaming with my with my buddies, I love the role-playing aspect, I wasn't such a big fan of the combat. And this game sounds like it's giving, just like Stephen was saying, that tabletop experience. So, I... We'll quote my review. My first pro is fantastic role-playing and combat. Um, so the combat is, on its surface, and, you know, at some deeper levels, very similar to classic Infinity Engine games. You know, like, like I said, auto-pausing, not or, you know, pause real-time. Uh, you know, you control your party of six. And first of all, there's a lot of meta-strategy in what is your party. 
because it's definitely a party-based game. Uh, you, there's an achievement for beating the game solo, and it could conceivably be done, but why would you do that? Because you get all these... That's the thing, is that's another reason I started a new game, is I had so much fun experimenting with my classes that I wanted to try the other ones. I never want to try other classes, but I was like, oh, gosh, it's so cool seeing how these different, like, part, these different, like, ways they interact, and even the way you spec them makes them different. Yeah, and the so classes that, are so unique. It is absolutely not just a manner of different skills and different stats like there's different mechanics surrounding each class that yeah has you approach each one totally differently so for example even the, the we'll go with the most boring class of all fighter you could be a fighter that fights with a great sword and your in your main skill is just dishing out tons of damage you could be a fighter who is very very defensive you could be a like you know where you have a lot of moves that like protect the rest of the party and again you're not a paladin you're a fighter you know you could have moves that um you know, because you can use any weapon with that class, and you know, through traits, you can choose what they're skilled with. Um, you know, my fighter, who I'm calling Troy Baker, even though it's actually Matt Mercer, which sucks, but he sounds like Troy Baker. Uh, Matt Troy Mercer ba- plays Troy Baker in some of the Persona Four materials. It, exactly, and so uh, Troy Baker in my party was a sword and shield wielding guy. He used a saber, which is different from a regular sword because it has a different degree of armor piercing. Um, and I gave him a lot of, like, knockdown-type attacks because I had a paladin who would follow up and do a lot of damage, and then the rest of my party focused on damage. So my main paladin, because there's a, a me- mechanic called engagement, and this is so that way you're, you're, you, know, you don't have, like, three giant ogres that are fighting your fighter, and then they decide to go after your mage. Engagement, what it does is, depending on... Because every class has a number of engagement. For example, your fighter starts with three. That means three enemies are engaged with him, and if they try to leave, he attacks them, and they stop, and they're they're their exit is stopped. So they stay engaged with him. And so I leveled my guy up to have really high engagement and a lot of knockdowns. So basically my fighter's job was to just keep the enemy from getting anywhere while the rest of my party just railed on them. Uh, you know, that's that's just him in particular. But then, you know, like, for example, my protagonist, I made a chanter who is basically, to explain what my character was, he was a shotgun-wielding man who could sing, summon dragons, and shoot fire and lightning. While he shot people with shotguns. Please uh, explain how chanting works specifically with the phrases and everything. Because this is one thing that blew my mind a little bit when I was researching the different classes. So what's cool, but what a chanter is, is they are essentially singing magical verse. And you, as you level up, you earn different verses. Like you could get, you know, and you, you have a, a, a staff sheet, uh, you know, like a musical staff. And so say I have three chants. I have one that raises my party's attack power. I have one that... Uh, causes the enemies to light on fire if they get near my hero, and I have one that causes my party to leave ice where they walk. So you put those, and depending on the power, each verse takes a different amount of time to chant. And so you can set your chant, and your character will start singing at the beginning of the fight, and every time you finish a verse, you get a charge. And then with a certain number of charges, your character, you have another set of spells called incantations, which are basically really powerful magic spells that are powered by your verses. So my character, for example, in a fight, would I would start him off, he would stand in the back and shoot his shotguns and, and chant to buff my party, because I, I, I had a chant where he buffed the party a lot, and then I had another more specific chant that I used where it was a lot of, like, enemy, you know, debuffs towards the enemy and, like, things that are a little more technical. And I had, you know, one of them had a lot of shorter verses, so I could build up power faster, because those spells are things like summon a dragon, and not like a baby dragon, but like a full, like, drake, like, awesome kill stuff dragon. I had one that made me instantly charm a bunch of enemies uh, and it works all the time. Um, and so like if I got into a fight, if I'm like, oh, this is going to be a short fight, I would just, I would use my 
longer chance that power up my party so I can kill faster. Versus if I'm in a boss battle, I would use my faster chance so I could quickly get up to my powerful magic and, you know, say, charm a group of the enemies or summon a dragon to back me up. Um, and, you know, again, you have to make choices because you cannot learn all of the spells. So, like, my guy was very much focused on, like, a sort of support slash damage role. But there are, like, revive skills you get. And reviving is very scar scarce in this game. Uh, only at maybe the last 20 hours of my experience did I have any way to revive people during combat. Um, so that's one class. That's the chanter. That's just one of my classes. Yeah, there's uh, 11 classes in the game. The chanter is one of the more elaborate, complicated ones. And, say, the fighter or the paladin that I had as my character are, one of the, are two of the less complicated ones. But each one sort of wears its gimmick extremely well and feels totally different from controlling any other class. And it's it blew me away. I thought it was one of the co coolest class systems I had experienced in years. There's, there's I'm at... one cool class called the Cypher. That's the Basically, one I want to try, yeah. So yeah. I, I, I had a Cypher. There's a, a uh, there's Because you can either hire generic party members who work like the ones in Final Fantasy Tactics where there's no story to them, or you can get the companions who are more like a Bioware companion. Uh, in my first playthrough, I used all... Because you, you create them earlier, and then your stronghold, you know, has you have different objectives that your stronghold can do. So I had made generic characters that I just sent off on stronghold missions while I kept my actual scripted party members with me. And there's one that's a cypher. And the cypher, basically, what they do is they're a melee class. Um, and the way I played it, I had my character wear very light armor and use a dagger so she could attack really fast. Because they have an ability called Soul Whip. And every time they use their Soul Whip attack, which is any regular attack... It builds up focus, and or not focus, I think it's called focus, but it's a little meter that b builds in the, the corner of your character portrait, and that powers their magic. And their magic is like wreck people's face type of magic. Yeah, uh, it's very aggressive, direct, um, like mostly a lot of it's short range. But yeah, the, the ci I'm using the cipher that they give you as, uh, over the course of the story, and she's maybe my favorite character to mess around with. Yeah, yeah well, this all sounds very fun. <laughs> No, it's great. And that's the thing is, you know, you could play your Cypher as a heavier warrior type with heavy armor, you know, the slower recovery, slower action speed. But the way I played the Cypher was like super aggressive where I had her like stabbing people super fast to build up focus because they get spells like, you know, one splinters the enemy's soul and damages enemies with the with the energy released. There's, you know, there's just so many different kinds of ways to fight. And the composition of your party will absolutely inform that because, you know, you can change your formation um, the beginning of the game is much harder. I, I played, surprisingly, I played on normal for the review, and it still took 93 hours. Wait, 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 wait. You didn't play a magic user. Wait. You played on normal. Right? I assumed you would play, a, I'm playing on normal as well, but I assumed you would do a higher difficulty than me because you're Steven. My new, my new playthrough, I'm on hard mode. And that's another cool thing you'd like, Rob. Hard mode does not make any enemy stats higher. It just changes what enemies appear in the, in the encounters. I like that. And it's That awesome I like. Because I know how to, because the reason it's cool, I know how to play the game better. Because the last difficulty, uh, Path of the Damned, actually raises the stats as well. But uh, what's cool about hard mode is I've played the game. I know how to play. I'm quite good. But I'm still like, now what I'm doing is instead of just being like, oh, I'm getting killed because the enemy just one-shots me, now it's like, oh, there are five more of these enemies, or, oh, there's a spellcaster in the back who's now, you know, punching through all my defenses. So now, as a player who has played the game before, I'm being challenged with a different kind of encounter as opposed to just yeah, see, enemies I, are ganking you. I felt like when I pumped the difficulty up on Dragon Age Inquisition, like, I started a new character just to mess around with that for a little bit, and I played that entire game on hard, I want to say, and... 
I died like once or twice, and then there were the dragons, which I don't feel like talking about right now. But then there's like the there are night- dragons and pillars. I know, but then there was the nightmare mode that I played, and I started the game from nightmare mode, and all it was was that enemies were just hitting me super hard, and I was like, "There's no like, there's nothing for me to do here. Like, all it is is the enemies are just hitting me harder." And I, yes, I find that to be the lamest way to increase difficulty in a game. It, you know, it's I, I understand why it's done because it's easy and can be, you know, it's faster. And again, Path of the Damned changes the encounters, but also makes the stats harder. So you have that option. Um, but that's that's the thing is that this is a challenging game. I will say I did every single side quest I could possibly do in my playthrough. And the game has four acts and the fourth act is significantly shorter than the rest. Mm-hmm. Um I did all I of the side quests. I just barely started the second act. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, it's okay. So I did I did all of the side quests that I possibly could. I did all of the hunts, which are uh, if you upgrade your stronghold to have a, a, a basically a hunting lodge, you'll get marks to go hunt in the world. Um, I did all of those, and those give quite a bit of XP. I maxed out at the max level of twelve, which is not as low as you might think, because um, you get a lot of options at those at each level. Um, I was at the max level at the beginning of Act Three. Uh, and that didn't even take away from the fun of the game, although it did make it easier because I was sort of dump trucking a lot of the fights. Uh, but again, that's, you know, in my playthrough, that was probably 70 hours out of my 93 that where I was leveling. And then so the last ones were easier with the ex- exception of the bonus dungeon, which is quite difficult. And that's why I gained so many levels, because I cleared the bonus dungeon very early. Uh, the dragon battles are quite challenging and they're fun. Uh and in many cases, you don't even have to fight them. You can actually solve a lot of the issues with the dragons through dialogue if you choose to do that. Uh, you won't get the achievement for killing all the dragons, though. Uh, and then the boss of the bonus dungeon is leaps and bounds significantly, as in I was getting frustrated on normal mode harder than everything else in the game. Um, there's a way you can cheese the fight through a side quest uh, that I opted not to do because I wanted to make it as hard as possible. And I did eventually win... But it's a really hard fight. Um, but for the most part, the game has a good difficulty curve unless you overlevel, in which case it gets a little easy. Cool. Cool. I, I, I mean, I think you've done your job, Stephen. Uh, I want to pick this up. Um, I've got a lot of small games on my docket right now. Like, I started playing Westerado, which is a great uh, top-down kind of Western Zelda-style adventure game and i'm really liking that uh, axiom verge i think i'm done with i, I want to like that game more than i do and uh i think there's one other one that's on my list and then pillars of eternity is right there but i, I gotta admit it's, it's a good, for a fellow like you who has the summer not teaching classes or unless are you teaching this summer i'll do a little bit of teaching this summer but I, I i have a lot of free time it's a good summer game um yeah it's a long game and it's not a game you're gonna want to rush you're gonna want to sit down and just relax and play it for a while uh, the, and like I said, the beginning of the game is challenging, but it also eases you into things a lot better than A, the classic Baldur's Gate titles, and B, Divinity. Because uh, Divinity has very little in the way of, like, I'm going to teach you how to play. Pillars yeah. does not have such a thing. Well, Divinity is about the experimentation, which is great, but I felt so hindered at the start of that game. It was like, nah. Yeah, well, and that's the thing is that another thing this game has that I love is that every single stat or keyword in the game, like, hey, perception or you know, damage reduction or deflection. Every single one of those, if you click on it, you get a tool tip that says how this stat is calculated and where the ca- calculations are coming from, whether oh, that's it's your great. character or your gear or your traits. 
that's very shots. helpful because there's I think six or seven or eight types of damage, and each one of them responds to one or more types of defense, and sort of damage reductions connected to all, connected to all of them. So it it was a little bit overwhelming for me at first, who was not used to playing these kind of games, but I could pause and just like mess around in menus for a while and they were able to explain everything. I mean, those those uh, older Baldur, like Baldur's Gate was one of the older Infinity Engine games I tried to play. It was just so impregnable and barely explained itself ever and that was part of why I was really struggling to play it 10 years ago or however long ago. Yeah, and I, I told you this, Mike, but I also recommend when you play this game, uh, get a party as fast as you can. The way yeah. I, the, yeah. the path I took through the early story because it's very it's very nonlinear insofar as that you know what your objectives are, but you don't you it's like a Bioware game where you can sort of accomplish them in any order. Um, I went to the hardest possible quest in Act One first, and I did it, but only after leaving and hiring adventurers. Because once you hit a certain point, they're sort of expecting that you have a six person party so you can manage these encounters. Um, I, so the suggestion I, 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 I make to most people, the Salosi, so you went the right way. You you actually <laughs> found the the scripted companions faster than I did. Yeah, well, I I didn't I guess explore as thoroughly as you did, but I you know just just by going to the first town and the area just outside the first town, I got three party members right away, and then in the very next area there was a fourth one. So I had after hiring one archer character or I guess ranger, I had a party of six before hitting the first sort of major encounter area. Yeah, and that's that's a good route to take because uh, a you'll get you'll get interesting story more often, and they pace the the companion story throughout the whole game. So you're gonna feel like you're like at first you're gonna be like they don't have a whole lot to say, but it's because they actually react to the adventure and like they don't just reveal everything to you because you went and did a mission and then you know you clicked all their dialogue options. Huh. And also, um, this is just going into the different types of characters and companions you meet. Um, my two favorite characters that I've met so far, I don't think I have all of them yet. I'm guessing one the, of them is Durance. Durance, yes, it, it's Durance and uh, um, and uh, uh, the, the cipher. What's her name? Wailing grieving mother. mother. Grieving, grieving mother. mother. Yeah, grieving mother and Durance are my two favorites. And one thing I just love about Durance is that he's a priest, but he is not a you know white tunicked, super holy traditional Western priest character. He is like. A dirty weirdo zealot philosopher, sort of pervy, like yeah. foul-mouthed. Like what? This is how interesting the characters get. He's one of the most interesting uh, in terms of narrative. Yeah, this character is angry at his god, and in order to shove it to her, he's following her teachings so closely that she can't possibly get angry at him. Yeah, I think when you if you roll a priest character, you choose which god to worship, and that affects your abilities and stats and whatnot. And he is taking that to a really amusing extreme and has a really cool personality. So he's 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 one of the characters I use the most. Him and oh, I'm just terrible with names and faces. Uh, him and the uh, the the chanter that you get. Well, it, well, and, oh, I, uh, I just met Grieving uh-huh. Mother. Yeah, yeah, the uh, the crazy like ocean ogre chanter that yeah kind of he's hilarious he's like that's yeah, great he's like this huge imposing guy who's sort of a goofy scholar and his race is a race unique uh unique to pillars among this kind of fiction it's like a sort of an islander ogre whose culture resembles you know like samoa or maori or something but yeah, uh, really yeah cool. they're these big trolly or ogre looking things and kana is really goofy and funny and he's a and he's a useful chanter yeah, I, di- I didn't use him too much because I had one. 
but because I was a chanter, but I I completed his side quest and used him in the bonus dungeon. So yeah, there's there you know could go on quite a while. I gave this game a ridiculously high score. I think it deserved it. Uh, there is going to have to be some serious competition for me to not give it game of the year. I love Bloodborne, but it's you know I I am still probably going to give it to Pillars. No, that's great. I, I think that's awesome. I'm I'm really excited that we have three big games in the span of two and a half months that I think are going to come up in Game of the Year competition. Big in every sense of the word. Like Bloodborne, Pillars of Eternity, and then Witcher 3, the more I see that game, the more I think that game looks really hot. Like, that that's three amazing RPGs, you know. I think maybe for our listeners that are, you know, really big into the JRPGs, those games are coming. You know, we're going to lose our minds when Persona 5 comes out and when Xenoblade gets here to America. We're going to lose Bravely our minds. Sec- Bravely Second just came out in Japan. Yeah, we're not going to lose our minds over that. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I'm, uh, I'm it's, having It's okay. Fun. Not all of us can have the right opinion. Yeah, you don't like Bloodborne, so there and you go. And you don't like Bravely with Blank. Bravely Blank. I, I think the second I heard how much backtracking there was in Bravely, I was like, I'm done. Like, you don't have to do any of that, though. I, yeah, yeah okay. we don't... I mean, this, this is don't a new game. Wrong. It's, it's not perfect, but again, this is A, this is a new game, and B, Bravely Default was awesome. It just... It was... The argument is that it is too long. It's a reasonable argument that we don't need to revisit here, but uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of exciting RPGs coming out this year, no matter what your tastes and preferences are, and that's really, really awesome. Yeah, yeah, and I think I need to pick up pillars and... We're about ready to take the AP exams, and then I am stick a fork in me done for the school year, and I can get ready for E3, and I think Pillars is going to be my game. I'm trying to think, what was the other game I need to play? I think I need to play the Outlast DLC, but that's you just like You need to play a, Ori and the Blind Forest so you can get that taste of Axiom Verge out of your mouth with okay. a perfect platforming game. It's not that Axiom Verge is a hmm. bad game, it's just that it is a 9 that because of some really... Ah, I want to be really respectful for the dude because it was one guy making it, and I think that's amazing. And I really like the exploration aspects of that game. But there's some, there's some parts that I'm just like, I think if one person had looked over his shoulder, they would have gone, you know, maybe you should show where the doors are on the map, because it's going to be an absolute nightmare if you somehow miss the door and you have to backtrack all over Hell's Half Acre to see where you're going. Like that's one of those things that Super Metroid got right, and we're kind of missing it here. But anywho, you mean all. Bob. Super Metroid got everything right. Weren't you the one who was arguing that Metroid Prime is better than Super Metroid, and I wanted to slap you? Well, I've beaten Metroid Prime. I haven't beaten Super Metroid. So if I was making that argument, I was being a little... I think you I mean, I think I you play... were being ornery with me one night, and on I think it was on a podcast, too, where you were just no, like... No, don't get me wrong. I'm going to beat Super Metroid someday, and I love that game, but Metroid Prime is amazing. I think Metroid Prime is, a, is an amazing beginning, and then it kind of gets a little muddled at the end. Uh, I don't like the backtracking, and I, I really don't like the final boss. I really don't like that final boss. Rebacktracking. Met- Super Metroid has just as much as Metroid Prime. Not in the end game. Not in the end game. You beat the four bosses, and you go to the main area. Like it, it does not have the. You need to go find four keys in the world. Have fun. <laughs> like that. That's. And then there was Metroid Prime Two Echoes, which was like, are you serious? Like that. I think Metroid. I think story. I still sort of like that game though. I, I didn't like Echoes hardly at all. I, I think the luster had kind of worn off, and they pushed that game design to their their limit. Um, but, but that doesn't on. stop everyone from clamoring for uh, Retro Studios to make another Metroid Prime, even though I thought their their Donkey Kong games were bet- way better than Metroid Prime Two or Three. 
I really want them to make a 2D Metroid, but, you know, I'm just going to sit here with that candle like the last Monumental in Demon's Souls, just holding on to that hope for dear life. They've made don't Metroid worry, games, worry. and they've made 2D games, so it's not totally unreasonable to think that. But, don't worry, you know. don't worry Rob. What, what the hell is Retro Studios Metroid even doing now? Well, they, they keep teasing that Mega Man game that they were making that looked absolutely nuts, and I was kind of like, eh, sure, what the hell. Well, I think when they say keep teasing, you mean they announced that that one time when it was canceled? Yeah, but they, they also... That was sh- Retro Studios. Yes, it was. It was, it was? Retro Studios. Yeah, yeah, it was Maverick Hunter X. Yep. Ma- for yeah. The PS- Maverick-, Maverick Hunter X for the PSP? No, no, we're talking about a canceled game. Yeah, this it was, was, it, was not, it was not called Maverick Hunter X, though. Yeah, Maverick Hunter X is the PSP remake of Mega Man X1. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Don't worry, Rob. At E3, when they announce a new Metroid, we'll, we can talk about it. I, w- I will be very excited. You know I will be the first one to yip and holler, so... When they announce two new Metroids... A handheld one and a console one. I think you're dreaming, but I really want you to be right. How about that? Does that make sense? Like, I think you're wrong, but I want you to be right. That's how everyone else pretty much says it. Yep. All right, let's talk about some news. Uh, I want to talk about a burning car crash. You mean... We have two. (laughs) Let's start with uh, actual, like, because it kind of relates to RPGs, and then we can sort of start... um, we can sort of start on something else that's kind of tangentially related. So Valve decided to try something a little different, and they allowed people to charge for mod support, or to charge for mods on some games on Steam. And that kind of blew up. Uh, you had, of course, Skyrim, one of the most heavily modded games on Steam, including things like Sky UI, which makes that game absolutely incredible from an inventory management standpoint. And suddenly people started charging for those mods, including Sky UI and things that I had been play- had been playing and using that were free, you could suddenly pay money for. Um, you know, I, I, I'm of a couple minds of this. You know, on the one hand, I, I kind of stand with Jim Sterling on this. I think he did a really good piece on Monday about this. On the one hand, I think content creators like Durante, the guy who fixed Dark Souls on PC and Deadly Premonition, because those were two rotten-ass ports on PC, and he got in there and fixed them up better than a game company, which is amazing. You know, if you want to donate to that guy, if he wants, you know, a PayPal or whatever that you can donate money to and say, hey, this was an awesome job, dude, thanks, that's completely fine. I think that's great. When you start charging for people's work that is not actually licensed by the game developer, and then you start getting into the nasty area of mods, building on mods, like, are you going to charge me for the duct tape mod in Doom 3? Like, that stuff gets... They did, eventually. Well, I mean, with the BFG edition, sure, but that was, like, the game developers trying to do something, and that failed miserably. That game sold, like, crap. But, like... I don't know, like, I I, I was so, like, I think this is a brave new world that Valve was entering, and they actually said the most honest thing I've ever seen out of a developer when, after not even a week, you know, I had students coming up to me asking me about this, not even a week into this whole program, Valve took it away, so you no longer pay for mods, and they actually put out a letter saying, it's very clear that we don't know what we're doing. And I was like, wow, that's completely honest. Well, you know, they have that reputation because, you know, there's plenty of people who backlash against Valve and for good reason or not good reason, whatever. Um, but part of the reason I like what they do is they're sort of very earnest about it. 
Um, so they've done some dumb stuff, and they still have existing dumb decisions that have not been redacted. But I'm glad to see that they were able to do it in this one because they do sort of have that reputation to maintain of a company that is doing things a little differently than how most companies do. Yeah, I- I'm not a fan of how they advertise games to uh, to Steam people now. Uh, Steam people to to users. Um, oh no, I, I don't like it at all. I made the mistake of clicking on an anime-looking game that turned out to be a hentai game, and all of a sudden, oh like, good, three, yeah, for three days straight, I ended up getting nothing but like, hey, do you want to check out this underage girl simulator? And I'm like, oh, for God's sake, can we go back to you guys just like trying to get me to buy Masquer- Vampire the Masquerade for like a fourth time? Like, can we go back to that? I think that's sure. I think that stuff's kind of terrible, but you know, it, this seems like they tried a brave new world thing, and maybe it'll be the future down the line. But I think we got a lot of stuff to work out first when it comes to you know how much work can a modder do, and modders working together, or people taking other people's mods and trying different things. I don't know. It, it seems like a brave new world, but. I think Valve did the right thing in the end by saying we very clearly didn't know what we were doing, and they're offering refunds. That's good on them, but I mean, in a way, I sort of don't bl- blame them, like you sort of alluded to towards the end there, because monetizing mods so that you know mod makers get a little bit of scratch from people downloading them and Valve taking a cut off of that makes sense. Like that is that is a marketplace that they would like to be involved in at least a little bit, especially since mod tools are better than ever and these communities are still thriving. But they sort of took too big a step at first, and they ended up, you know, stepping in a pile of crap that they immediately, you know, stepped off of and washed off. Yep. So, it, yeah, I it'll get. There's going to be a model like that in the future, of course, but it'll be better than this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of stepping in a giant pile of crap, um, the fallout from not actual fallout, but the fallout from which the will whole, probably be announced at E3. Most likely, the fallout from the Kojima Productions hubbubaloo over at Konami just continues to shock me to no end. Like, it, I, I don't even know that this is fallout from that. You know, I, I mean, maybe they're not unrelated. True. But I feel like true. whatever happened with Kojima is separate from this. I mean, it's it's obviously related to it, but Silent Hills was sadly canceled. A day after PT was pulled off of the PlayStation Store, or yeah, so announced to be being pulled this off. This whole thing started when PT, the playable teaser for Silent Hills, was announced to be uh, coming off of the PlayStation Store, and that set the red, the the alarm bells and red flags, and everybody losing their minds. And then Guillermo del Toro over the weekend said that Silent Hills wasn't going to happen anymore. You know, that's the second time this dude has had a game with his name attached canceled. Y'all remember Insane? I remember, remember the trailer for that looked cool. Yeah, I was like, hey, cool. It kind of looks a little little interesting here. That got canceled. Yeah, he also had one of his uh, um, Mountains of Madness uh, film project canceled after he after like a studio backed away because Prometheus was too similar, which makes me really sad. Yeah. Because Prometheus wasn't great. No, that's but, not a very Prometheus was not great. But yeah, so poor Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro has had a bad has had terrible luck with his projects the past three or four years. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, what we're seeing here is, and we talked about it in the pre-show warm-up, Konami is not only a video game maker. Like, they have health clubs and stuff in Japan and pachinko machines. Like, they are not a single... They're not a company that exists solely around video games. So it sounds like this is a massive restructuring. There's talk about them going for more mobile development. Um, but I'm going to speak, you know, very honestly and almost emotionally here. I'm 
furious and I'm pissed. Like, this is... Konami holds such a special place in my heart as a gamer from the late 80s to the present day. You know, you got your Metal Gear, you got your Castlevania, you got your Suikoden, you got your Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, for God's sake. Like, these guys made my childhood. And frankly, we all knew that there were major problems when they only had three apparent titles in production. Metal Gear 5, Metal Gear Solid 5, Pro Evolution, Soccer, whatever year we're on, and Silent Hills, which was kind of more concept than game at that point. Uh, It was very clear that this is a company that maybe got scared because they took some risks. I mean, I think it was a valiant attempt what they decided to do with Castlevania on consoles. Didn't really work out. You know, that, that kind of came back to bite them a little bit. They spent a lot of money on Lords of Shadow 2, and that game didn't end up so well and probably didn't sell that well. It went on sale very quickly. Um, they, they've gotten a little snake bit, and it sounds like they're moving away from publishing big video games. And that's the second time today you've said snake bit, by the way. Sorry. It's okay. I was just counting. No, you're right. You're right. I was talking about it earlier. Uh, and this just makes me really sad. Like, I, I hate seeing a game developer go through this. I don't... I, I think some people misread me uh, over the past couple of years when I talk about Square Enix. I don't like talking about a burning car wreck. I really don't. I, I don't like pointing at the car accident and saying, bah, ha, 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 that's terrible. No, I want Square Enix to kick ass. I want Konami to kick ass. I want Capcom to kick ass. And Square Enix is certainly coming around quite a bit. You know, Final Fantasy XIV, Final Fantasy XV, Bravely Default. Like, they, they are coming around. They're figuring out. New Deus Ex, yay! Yeah, like, they, they're they're doing some cool stuff with both Western titles and their own, like, in-house brand. For the love of God, bring Dragon Quest Seven to the States on 3DS, please. Please. Please, for the love of God, do that. So Steven is not waving that copy of Dragon Warrior Seven in my face, and I want to punch him. But... I've been avoiding playing. I've been avoiding playing my copy of that in hopes of being able to play it on 3DS. But yeah, it's not happening. But then, then you've got Capcom, which can't really see. I mean, Capcom single-handedly resurrected the 2D fighting game and then drove it into the dirt within five years. Like, and they can't get it right. I, Resident mm, Evil. I'm okay. Th- well, I mean, I I don't really like horror games, but I played a lot of Street Fighter Four, and they've actually been pretty reasonable with the updates on that uh well okay i don't know how much i i don't know if this is a hill worth dying on but i thought that the first update to street fighter 4 was justified and the others after it probably not probably the paid ones weren't but i'm i I really do miss breath of fire and i wish that the new one wasn't a mobile game yep a mobile game that looks nothing like breath of fire Yep. And uh, I mean, we uh, speaking of fires, this you know, burning, slow burning tire fire that is whatever Konami's doing. If there ever is a new Suikoden or Castlevania that I want to play, I mean, I'm worried it's going to be on a phone. And as much as I, and I, I've been playing more phone games the past 12 months than I ever have in my entire life, but I don't want to play uh, like a, a, a series that I loved on consoles on a on a phone. I yeah. want a I want a big cool console version. 
Well, and I think that there are room. There's room for maybe not a triple A hundred million dollar project. I mean, there there's room for these smaller games. Like I'm looking at Steam right now, like Westerado, Pillars of Eternity. You have all these games which were much more reasonable. You know, they they're able to make a lot of money because they didn't cost nearly as much. I mean, Metal Gear Solid Five cost probably an insane amount of money to make. You know, that game has to sell a lot of copies before it turns a profit. Maybe that's not the direction for every one of their titles, but they can do smaller stuff. Like, there are avenues available to them. The PlayStation Network, Xbox One, they all, they all have huge download services. There's nothing wrong. Like, if they, if Capcom just threw together a nasty-ass Mega Man 2D game, people would lap it up. People lapped up Mega Man 9. Like, come on, guys. You, you know what you're doing here. But it seems like the mobile space is so strong, especially in Japan, and they're seeing such massive profits that they they almost can't turn their back on it but this just this angers me like i'm i'm just like you know i'm not trying to be the old man on fox news like back in my day but like i want to see these types of titles i want to see these companies willing to take risks you know like i i want to see those kinds of things and we're just square enix has gotten it together and i i thought square enix was dead and gone Really, I, I did. And they have somehow managed to fix it by listening to fans and putting some goddamn effort into it. And meanwhile, you know, we're not seeing that so much out of Capcom and Konami. The big three... I, oh, I, I disagree with that perception of yours a lot. And I think I, I think I threw shade at you on the forums a year or two ago because of that. But... Uh, yeah, I, I I think it's just the model, the pricing model of games nowadays. I, I say pricing model. I should say the budget structure, I guess, because it seems like to have a successful game, it either needs to cost a hundred million dollars and and make two hundred million, or be a cell phone game with uh, microtransactions. And there's a lot less space in the middle, uh, or or away from those extremes. So. A game that might have had a, a medium budget and catered to a more niche audience, like you know a Mega Man game or a Suikoden game, is is not as economically feasible anymore because of the way that they're targeting these sort of two extremes of the pay scale, and that's depressing. I mean, this is this is weird to say, but I think that Ubisoft is actually doing a really really smart thing. By, I think I, I might have mentioned this before on a podcast, but they're having these big budget games that sort of make the bread for them, and then these weirder, smaller budget games like Child of Light that ju- just to hmm. mess around with something low budget and maybe build some goodwill among a uh, um like among the gaming press and gaming fan base at large, and balancing those big budget things with medium and small budget things is seems like the perfect way to go about doing things to me, but. Konami's abandoning all that. They're not going to make a, you know, a sort of lo-fi download-only Castlevania for PS4 and and Wii U and Xbone. They're they're going to abandon medium or large budget games entirely, and that's that's sad. And even though I'm not a Silent Hill guy, it like PT was one of the legit coolest things that happened in video games last year. And now they're taking all this momentum and hype and clout they had built with that and just throwing it away. It's like, nah, it's not worth it. And that's sad, even if you're not even even to me, who isn't into Silent Hill at all. Yeah, I I think that you know I I talked about it over the past year. Um, I think you take a title like Alien Isolation and you chop that game in half, which is what it really needed. It didn't need to be as long as it was, and it actually lost momentum. 
chop that game in half and sell it for $25 or $30, and I think you would have had a way more profitable game. Honestly, like it ended up doing well for him, but I think you would have had more interest, and people are willing to try things at lower budgets, and we're seeing that with the download services. Why not try it a little bit? You know, Yeah, the, the indie market is thriving with these download services, and uh, Sony and Nintendo and Microsoft are all reaching out to indie developers and trying to get these games on their consoles. I don't know why more big game companies do something sort of like what Ubisoft is doing and try to make some games tar- with that budget and that target audience in-house. Yeah, your, your Ubisoft argument is actually really like, strong. I didn't know where you were going there, but when you brought up Child of Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm, not a, I'm not an Assassin's Creed guy at all, but the way that they're sort of planning these different budget levels of games it seems really smart to me. Yeah, and I think there was a lot of room for that. And if you... If Konami had announced a PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Wii U... 2D Castlevania game. Good lord. I, like, people yeah, would have lost their damn minds. If it's like Harmony of Despair, but actually sort of a standalone self contained Castlevania game that you can download, then I couldn't, I couldn't sp- draw out my credit card fast enough. Yeah. People would be willing to try. And I also think gamers are way more willing to part with $20 than $60. 60 is a major purchase. You know, 20 bucks is, you know, getting a pizza and a couple of two liters. You know, I'm not saying that that, that, that money should be wasted, but that's that it's much easier to throw $20 at something. Like, I, I'll, I'll buy a $15 game off Steam, play it a couple <laughs> times, and go, eh, it's not really my jam, but... Huh, that was cool. I I have no problem throwing fifteen bucks at Axiom Verge. And Turned the, out to not be my thing, but fine. What the hell? I got like four hours out of it. The flip side of this is that people have grown so comfortable in these digital markets that have sales all the time that yeah. for some people fifteen or twenty bucks is too much, which is seems a little crazy to me. But I also have disposable income, and some and some of that disposable income goes to games every year, naturally. But uh, it's. It's it's weird. They're still figuring out how much video games should cost and how many and how much people are willing to buy for what kind of game. Those those questions don't have hard answers now, even though we've had online marketplaces for around for over a decade. It's yep. it, it's it's a fascinating conversation, but I don't know how much farther we should go. I mean, yeah, we, we could be doing this all night. Yeah, I'm just I'm just sad. I'm just I'm really really sad, and I hope that you know it sounds like Konami might be done. In this space, I'm really hoping that some of the success that Capcom has seen over the past couple months, I mean, they just announced that that Resident Evil HD version sold a million copies, which is probably more than it sold on GameCube. Uh, that's fantastic. So, And Lords of Shadow is the best-selling Castlevania game of all time. Is it really? Yeah, that's why they made a sequel. I, actually, I don't know if Lords of Shadow 2 did better than it, but... That's sort of what pushed Konami towards making only blockbusters or cell phone games. Huh. That's... It's yeah, it's uh, it's it's a little sad seeing. I mean, I Castle Simon Belmont is one of the top five or six reasons why I kept playing my NES, and it's to see Konami screw up this bad. I hope that the series from it that I love get salvaged somehow, even if it's not from Konami, even if it's not by Konami. Yeah. Norman Reedus is sad. He will not be in Silent Hills. Very depressing. I'm sad he won't be in Silent Hills as well. Uh, my only thing is that I, I would have been really pissed off if we just got another Silent Hill game where, with an unreliable narrator protagonist that had a dark past. If we got another one of those, then I would have been pissed. 
I don't think you would have been pissed if it was good. No, I'm a little tired of the Silent Hill 2 story done over and over again. I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of through with it. Like every Silent Hill game with the exception of 3 has been a dark uh, after 2, every Silent Hill game except for 3 has been the dark brooding protagonist that has a bad past. 3 is underrated. I didn't like 3 that much, but it it was still it was still good. I think 3 is a better game than 2. But 2 has that amazing story that you had never seen anything like it before. Like, uh, but 3 is the better game. Wasn't a big fan of Heather, though, I gotta say. Just just didn't like her that much, but whatever. Okay, now I'm thoroughly depressed, and it's almost, it's past midnight. Um, should we wrap this up? Yes. I just want to, I want to go play some Evanescence music and play Castlevania and just feel bad about myself but pillars of eternity i'm gonna go stop the moon pillars of eternity is wonderful yeah also i'm actually quite enjoying majora's mask but i'll talk more about that in the next episode when i've probably finished it all right all right well as always uh thank you everybody for listening to the show and be sure to give us some feedback i'd like to get a little a little more messages and and i always will chill out the podcast if you give us uh positive reviews on itunes i will read them and chill myself out i am I'm no stranger to being a, a whore. Uh, we have, of course, Rhythm Encounter with Steven and Derek, so that, that gets all your music stuff. And then we actually have something new coming up. Mike, you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, this idea was hatched by some of the relatively new RPG fan hires because uh, um, it's been in the planning stages for a few months now. But I think... Maybe by the time that this is out, we'll already have the first episode out where there is going to be a new RPG fan podcast centered around, uh, centered around sort of a, uh, not exactly a let's play, but sort of a like a an RPG playing club. Uh, have we 100% settled on the name yet, Stephen? Yeah, it's re- uh, it's going to be called Retro Encounter. Okay, so thank yeah, God. A new <laughs> yeah, there there was some there was some discussion about what we should call it uh but yeah it's going to be called retro encounter and it's going to have a rotating cast of hosts both steven and i are going to appear on early episodes and the intro episode may may already be out at the time of this release but i'm not positive about that cool cool we have three podcasts guys you know what i was realizing the other day we've been doing this show for five years yep i am old we did this show with Kim when she still worked for us. Yes, we did. Kim was on the show. <laughs> I joined RPG Fan in early 2012, about three years ago, because of this podcast. See, I can never tell how many people are listening to this. I, I, I have a feeling that we're only like, it's like ham radio. I'm only broadcasting out to like 10 or 15 dudes, but you know, whatever. You'd be That's surprised. Cool. A lot of people reach out to us. If you would use any form of social media, you would know that. <sighs> You guys know I don't trust social media. Actually, no, you use Facebook, but you're a teacher, I understand. Yeah, it is what it is. So uh, thanks again, everybody, for listening to the show, and uh, we will see you all later. Bye. Bye. See ya.